welcome to Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Today my guest is Dr. Mario Martinez. Mario is a clinical neuropsychologist who lectures around the world about how our cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. Conversations is sponsored by HealthMasterySystems.com, Holistic Products for Body, Mind, and Soul, and PurePlantEssentials.com, Organic Aromatherapy. Please visit these websites today. My guest, Mario Martinez, is the founder of Biocognitive Science, a new science that identifies how our beliefs affect our immune, nervous, and endocrine systems. Mario is the author of the audio program, The Mind-Body Code, How the Mind Wounds and Heals the Body, which explores the dynamic relationship between our thoughts, body, and cultural history, as well as how you can use this paradigm of understanding to heal the mind and body. On today's show, Mario will discuss the mind-body connection from a cultural context and how culture gives rise to our biology. Mario has identified three cultural wounds prevalent throughout the world, the wounds of abandonment, betrayal, and shame, as well as how we can heal each of these three wounds. Hi, Mario. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me on again. So, Mario, you are the founder of Biocognition. What exactly is Biocognition, and why is it relevant to our health and longevity? Um, I have to uh, invent the word to um, bring an understanding between cognition and biology, uh, because science continues to be fairly split between mind and body, although it claims that it's not. It talks about biological processes and talks about cognitive processes, then sometimes they bring them together, but hardly ever do they bring together cognition, biology, and culture. So biocognitive means biological, cognitive, within a cultural context. So biological could be everything, emotions, anything physical, the nervous system, the endocrine system, the immune system, and cognitive is the thoughts, the memories, the symbols that we have, and what I uh, propose is that we are biosymbolic, meaning that all symbols have a biological correlate. We learn symbols from the beginning. We learn, for example, when you're hungry, uh, we, you learn that when the mother comes, you see the breast of the mother, that, that is a symbol, that is a, a view, it's an image. Later it brings words, but as you're learning that, you're having a biological response. You're having a biological response to the hunger, to the uh, satisfaction of the hunger, and, and that is how we learn biosymbolically. Later, we assume that words are just words, but our words have already been determined and shaped by a culture. A culture will shape how you view the world, so our perception is very cultural. Our perception is not something uh, unique uh, across uh, the universe, but it's just a very cultural, a very well-defined biosymbolic process. So an example would be, just so I can, I can land this and make it uh, very practical, so biocognition is very practical. In, uh, in Peru, the culture uh, considers that when a woman is going through menopause, they, when they're having the hot flashes, they call that bochorno, which translates to um, shame or, or embarrassment. Mm. We know in, in psychoterminology, the, what studies the, how behavior affects the mind-body process specifically the, the nervous system, the endocrine system, and the immune system, we know that when a person is shamed or when a person is uh, um, made to feel or belittled or, or to be embarrassed, uh, 
the immune system actually releases pro-inflammatory products, inflammatory products, as if you're having a wound. So taking that understanding and going to the Peruvian culture, you see that the Peruvian women, when they have the hot flashes, when they have the menopause symptoms, they have a high level of inflammation. That's culture. Then you go to another culture, which is the opposite. You go to Japan, where they consider that menopause is called the second spring. It doesn't have any negative connotations. So the second spring is, a, is an opportunity for a woman to learn a new wisdom. There's no shaming. There's no embarrassment. And you, you measure the inflammatory products of a Japanese woman during the menopause, and it's normal. So that is one of the best examples of, of, of explaining how culture can shape your biology and biology can shape your culture. Oh, that's excellent. Let's talk about worthiness and empowerment. How are these two related? Uh, worthiness has to be with, with the level of uh, valuation that you give yourself. And the empowerment, uh, you cannot be empowered without the valuation. You can have power over other people. That's not empowerment. That's power. Empowerment is very specific and is very powerful as far as the immune enhancing process that it has. I work with uh, Fortune 100 companies uh, working with the executives and, and with the uh, um, cultures that they create. And one of the things that we see is that most companies are not empowering their employees. They talk about the mission statements and the, and the vision statements, but basically the culture that they create, the culture that they communicate with, how they implement that, that mission and that vision is very disempowering. And one of the ways that you can disempower people is by giving them a task without meaning mm -hmm. or giving them responsibility without authority. And that's basically what we do in most corporations. You give somebody a responsibility and then you don't give them the authority to go to the resources that they need. Well, the immune system does the same thing. The immune system functions by giving responsibility to the, to the lowest uh, um, uh, cell. In fact, the empowerment code is, a, is, is the equivalent of biocognition that we use in, in corporations. And I use how the immune system makes decisions. I use that system to teach the Fortune 100 companies how to actually organize themselves like the immune system does. It can make hundreds of thousands of decisions under turbulence um, without any consultation with the brain. Mm -hmm. So it's a very decentralized system. Yes. And your question on, on empowerment and, and, va and valuation, in biocognition we look at three levels of um, self-esteem. Usually self-esteem, you talk about how you value yourself, the validation that you give to yourself, but seldom do they go beyond that. What I do in biocognition is I talk about the valuation that you give yourself, how worthy you think you're, you are about receiving especially good things, how worthy do you think you are about good uh, a future in your life. But the second that I talk about is the level of affiliation that you have. The affiliation that you have means who are the people that you associate with to share that valuation? Who are the people that actually enhance your life and, and, you, and you share that with? You could have a very high level of um, valuation and a very low level of um, um, the, uh, the, the connection with other people. The third one is competence, and you'll see how they come together in a second. Competence is how good you are at what you do. You could have a very high level of competence and not a very high level of valuation, and this is, you can see it, for example, in a, a CEO who runs a multi-billion dollar company, 
and he or she comes home and gets shamed by the by the partner or the or husband or wife. Uh, so they have a high level of competence and a low level of valuation. So self-esteem is a cluster of valuation, competence, and affiliation. And those three things are the components that make a person feel worthy of what they do, and especially worthy of good things. And later in the program, if we have time, I'll, I'll, I'd like to talk about the danger of joy and the danger of good fortune, mm -hmm. <laughs> which appears to be something illogical, but it, it's very, very... Uh, uh, very practical to know the uh, the process. Yes, well, I appreciate how clear you are. I mean, you're really giving good examples of all of these. They seem kind of complex concepts, but you're making it very clear and practical for us. So, how does one develop a sense of worthiness, and can it be learned in adulthood? Uh, well, you always have to go back when something when you're trying to fix something. You you have to go back to see how it broke. Otherwise, you're trying to fix something and you're covering it up, you're band-aiding and you're not fixing the, the actual loss. So one of the things that we do is look at what are the wounds, as you mentioned, the archetypal wounds. And I call them archetypal because I've studied most cultures in, in five continents and found that the good news is that you can, you can only be hurt three ways, in three different ways. And that is, as you mentioned, abandonment, betrayal, and shame. And you have to go back to find out what actually robbed you of your self-esteem? Was it an abandonment wound? Was it a, a, a betrayal? Was it a shaming? It's not just when something happens once. We're very resilient. But when you have a pattern of abandonment, for example, emotional abandonment or physical abandonment or a pattern of betrayal or a pattern of uh, shaming, then what happens is that that wound doesn't allow you to gather information to confirm that you're worthy. So you have a wound. And no matter what happens to you, a part of you has already been pre-programmed and, and pre-processed so that you don't accept the good things because you are shamed or because you're betrayed or because you're abandoned. So you have to go to the, the, the where it broke, begin to work on the wounds, and then uh, I can talk about, elaborate later on, if you like, on, on the actual healing process. But you have to find out what they are, and we all have them. Uh, once I was giving a lecture at the, for psychologists, and psychologists, you know, they're very anal in the sense that they have to analyze everything, and I'm a psychologist myself, and I forgot one of the wounds. I said, well, there are three wounds. There's abandonment, and there's betrayal, and I forgot the other one, and one of them said, oh, you must have that wound, because you forgot. And I said, no, don't worry. I have all three of them, so it's nothing to worry about. Uh, so, uh, but but the, the key is that you have to identify which is yours. And it's so interesting that you have a psychoneurological response different to each of the wounds, you have a different temperature to each of the wounds. So for example, if you have a wound of abandonment, when you go to the wound of abandonment, you can do it under relaxation and, and, and contemplative state so you can actually go to the moment, you're going to feel cold. It's a coldness. Your body will feel cold. What's happening is you're constricting your vascular system and you're taking the blood away from, from the periphery and you're, you're getting cold. When you are abandoned, it's a coldness. It's a fear of not knowing someone who is supposed to be there is not there. Very early in life, we can have that happen to us. That's that, in fact, that's the most primitive of, of, of the three. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't shame a child till they have an identity. For example, until a child can look in himself or herself in the mirror and say, that's me, which means that they have an image, an ego, you can't shame them. They have to have that level of cognition. And you can't betray until you know 
that you are a person by looking at yourself in the mirror, but you can certainly abandon. You can leave a child alone and the child dies. So it's the most primitive of the three. The other one, um, embarrassment or shaming. You notice when people are ashamed, they turn red. Mm -hmm. That's an immunological response. That's an, uh, it's a, an endocrinological response. It's responding as if you're actually being wounded. You're having, you're opening up your, your the, it's the opposite of abandonment. You're opening up your vascular system. You're opening up histamines and you're opening up uh, IgEs and all kinds of immunological processes as if you had a, uh, an allergy. And that temperature is hot. You notice that when people are, are embarrassed, they, they look hot, they turn red. And they have inflammation when, when they're having a sense of um, an experience of, of uh, shaming. And when you go to betrayal, betrayal, a person also gets hot. It's a hotness, but they get angry rather than shaming and, and wanting to hide and wanting to disappear from the world. So they're all three. They're different. They have different physiological, phenomenological responses, and those are the three that I've been studying for the last 15 years mm -hmm. across cultures. So speak a bit about how the meaning we give to situations, how that plays into this, you know, how, how that plays into the effect on our biology. Uh, yes, because uh, the meaning becomes, it's a symbol, a word is a symbol, but it becomes biosymbolic because the word has effect. For example, you're told that uh, in your culture that to go out in the rain, you'll catch a cold. Go out in the rain, you'll catch a cold. Those are words. Those are symbols. Mm. But what happens if it comes from an authority, a mother, a father, a teacher, that in a sense to, uh, it's an evolutionary process that, that if an authority tells you something, it must have value. Therefore, that word becomes an alarm. When you hear that word, there's an alarm system that allows you to secrete cortisol, just as if you're seeing a, a, uh, a lion. So what happens? You go out in the rain and your mother says, you don't go out in the rain, you'll catch a cold. And you go out knowing, you may defy it intellectually, but knowing biosymbolically that it's not good, that it's an alarm. What happens? Your body begins to respond with, with a fight or flight. Cortisol is released. Cortisol inhibits immune function. So any virus or any bacteria that's going around, likely will catch it. You come home and you have a cold. Mm -hmm. So you see, it's, it's about symbolic processing. So we have to be very careful with what we say, especially people in authority like doctors and psychologists, and when they tell you you have six months to live or there's no cure for this. There are other ways of saying things without sentencing people. Mm -hmm. So those people in authority, we give them power. We give them power, and they're, they're what I call the culture editors. They edit your life. They tell you how good, how bad you are, what you can, what you cannot do. I've seen patients, immigrant patients, who uh, tell me their stories, and they tell me they're from uh, places in uh, very poor countries in Latin America, and they tell me, my father, uh, uh, a woman will say, my father told me that uh, that we were never going to be able to, to have anything. We were poor, and poor people really don't have a right to anything. Poor people are there to serve other people. So with that admonition, imagine how difficult it would be for that person to uh, to succeed. And when they do succeed, most likely they sabotage so they can go back to the tribal beliefs that told them that they were unworthy because they don't have any socioeconomic status. 
So I love uh, how original your language is uh, for explaining things to us. Uh, can you describe the difference between an intellectual and an embodied experience and the difference between the two? Yes, that's very important because uh, sometimes if you do just uh, cognitive processes, what you're doing is you're just, you're just moving things around in your head. We don't learn things in our head. We learn things in our body and in our head. That's why it's biocognitive, not just cognitive or biological. So embodying means that you experience what I call the felt meaning. The felt meaning is actually the manifestation of the word in your body. So if somebody says, you're an imbecile, you might get upset and everything, but you're not really looking at how that was manifested in your body. So how do you embody it? How do you find the felt meaning? You go to your body and you observe how you're manifesting that word that was told to you, you're an imbecile. And by doing that, you're identifying how your body responds, you're identifying what it is that it's doing, and then simply, rather than get rid of it, you don't want to get rid of the storm, you go into the storm. You go into what you're feeding in the body and, and observe rather than try to do anything. Observe and breathe. And what you're doing in a biosymbolic way is you're cleaning out that process without intellect. If you say, oh, I'm, I'm, this doesn't bother me, oh, I'm, it's okay, I can understand. Forget it. Your body will not buy that. Mm. It has to be embodied. It has to be a felt meaning that you can identify. And, and this is very complex psychoneurological neuroscience processes, but they're so simple to fix once you know the process. And you fix it by observing and paying attention to it, going into it rather than running from it, mm -hmm. and letting your body dissipate by itself. It's amazing what will happen when you do that. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to buy anything. It's not in a, in a pill. It's not in a bottle. It's, it's within you. It's your own pharmacy. So how is our belief related to the experience of embodiment? Well, you, you may have a belief, and that belief uh, could be an intellectual belief that you have, uh, for example, you believe that uh, <clears throat> that you are unworthy. And the belief could be you're unworthy because you think you're unworthy or because you were told that you're unworthy. But all you know and all you become aware of is the actual intellectual process. I'm unworthy because people don't like me. See, it's a cognitive process. And to resolve that, you can't in a cognitive way, you can't resolve it. You can't just say, I'm worthy, I'm good. You can't reason it out because it's not a reasoning process. It's a biocognitive process. So how do you do it? What you do is you, you identify the evidence that was given to you or the admonitions that were given to you to tell you that you're unworthy. One day you fell uh, riding your bike and, and, and your dad says, you're so clumsy you can't do anything. So you have evidence that you fell and you have the words that say that you fell. So you take that evidence and you generalize it into everything else. So what happens is your perception becomes very selective to finding what's wrong with you. You may be riding a bicycle for three hours, but if you happen to fall for five minutes, that's the evidence that you use mm -hmm. to confirm the perceptual belief that was given to you. So one of the things you do is you have to learn who were the editors, who were the culture editors that, that, that told me who I am, mm -hmm. and how can I begin to find evidence to define what I was told, that I'm clumsy. Well, I'm clumsy and yet I can practice karate. How is that possible? Well, that's evidence. You see, that's not thinking, that's evidence. How does it feel when I practice karate? That's embodying it. 
And that embodying is what begins to gradually change the symbol that you created about mm -hmm. being clumsy. And it could be about anything. It could be, be clumsy, it could be anything. Bad at math, bad with uh, directions. I was told that I was bad with directions and I bought it for many years and I would, no, I'm not, I'm not good with directions. No, I'm not good with directions. And I would confirm that every time I got lost. Mm -hmm. So finally I said, wait a minute, wh where did this come from? Found the source, began to look for evidence every day I could get myself around without anybody telling me. So that evidence is a felt meaning also. That evidence began to change my sense of having a bad sense of direction. So it has to be biocognitively learned and biocognitively recontextualized. Mm -hmm. New context. Great example. In your audio program, The Mind Body Code, you present the idea that illness is learned. How is this so and what is the mind body code? Okay, in, in medicine, we're, we're, we're taught uh, a, a genetic helplessness.